to the board game community show. I'm your host, Riley Starr. Join me as I get to know folks in this community. They could be designers or streamers, podcasters, YouTubers, publishers, whatever. Really anything with a nerd at the end of its title is welcome here on the board game community show. Show, show. Welcome back to the board game community show. Today I am really excited to have somebody on that I've been meaning to ask for a while, but I think, you know, you get a little imposter syndrome and you get scared to ask somebody to come on. Uh, and I think this person means a lot to me because having, uh, as listeners know, I often talk about like uh, my Native American ancestry. And this is my first Native American guest. So Connor Alexander, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. This is going to be fun. You are the CEO of Coyote and Crow. How's that been going? It's been a whirlwind year. I mean, to say the least, I've got a lot of success stories and I've got some failures and they've all been sort of dramatic swings and hits and or dramatic swings and misses. I'll just try to, I try to take those in stride, right? Like I, I think the lesson I learned from my first successful Kickstarter was is that I needed to start dreaming a little bigger. So I think all of my my attempts to do what I'm doing have been, you know, how big can I make this or how far can I go with this? And like I said, sometimes that fails and sometimes it doesn't. So yeah. <laughs> That's awesome to hear though. I think you have to, you know, as you grow and you you make those bigger goals, you have to fail so that you can learn and learn those limits and be Absolutely. like, okay, well, how do I break that limit? Absolutely. So, yep. That's awesome. Are there any you care to share? Uh, some oh, advice? Sure. Yeah. Wise, I mean, let's start off wise right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On, on, on the successes, I mean, obviously the, the core game is, is took sort of took Kickstarter by Kickstarter by storm and, and surprised the hell out of me with its success. Um, but what's really kind of surprised me since then is how I don't want to use too much board game terminology, but or like board game industry terminology. But like there's a what's called a tail in business. And it's like the tail is like how how long before sales drop off. It's sort of like imagine sort of a gentle curve. Everybody has other than maybe like D&D has a gentle curve downward on sales from any particular product that comes out. And the tail for role playing games is generally really short. You usually get a very short window where people are excited to buy your game and they either engage with it or like a lot of role players, and this is totally fair, it ends up on your shelf next to all your other role playing games and not being touched, which is, you know, is a real thing in, in this specific sub hobby that we have with role playing games. And that's fine. And I sort of expected that. But what's been interesting and a, and a pleasant surprise for me is how long our tail is. I keep getting messages every day from people who have somehow never heard of Coyote and Crow and are getting exposed to it. And so we've seen much better sales overall over the last six months than I expected to see. That is really cool to hear. Yeah. I I know personally, I hear friends all the time who find out about it and like contact me and like, have you heard of Coyote and Crow? And I'm like, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah, this, this is Wait, great. Did I just catch you? Did I hear you say Coyote? I did. Yeah. 
Oh, I love coyote. that. I love that. So we've had this debate internally a couple of times, like uh, uh, coyote, 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 uh, coyote. I, I hear all the different pronunciations and I love hearing it from different Native Americans and from different folks around the country and how they pronounce it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that somewhere I heard audio, uh, like I'm pretty sure I learned this from like my grandfather or or my mom, like yeah. that's how she says it. And she learned it from her dad, you know, like, uh, but yeah. a lot of times people say coyote. That's what I most hof- often hear. And I, whenever I hear coyote, I'm always like, oh, like Wiley coyote. Yeah. Like that's yeah. the only time I say coyote. <laughs> <a> proper noun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a name. Yeah. That's, you know, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, see, it's, I, that I is interesting. In, how do you say it? I grew up in Southern California and I heard coyote all the time. And I mean, despite having uh, like my whole dad's side of the family is Mexican, despite that. But then when I went back to Oklahoma and spent some time on my reservation, I heard coyote a lot with a, with a sort of distinct break of breakdown of the syllables. So it's really interesting to hear regionally how it's, how it's mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm Midwest. So yeah. Um, I don't yeah. know. Well, you can see that's interesting. He was Texan. My mom was Texan, so I wonder if that's maybe where I got huh. that. Is a little maybe I don't know. Huh. Maybe it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, Coyote, I think sounds the coolest. Yeah, I already love this does. tangent we're on. <laughs> absolutely does. Yeah. <laughs> so, but crow is always crow. Crow, yeah, crow is always crow, and <laughs> yeah, unless unless you're going to a different language, but yeah, yeah. How many languages is this uh, translated into? Uh, none so far. So we're working okay. on, I've got three that I want to do. Well, three, three that I want to do, not counting native languages. I really wanted to get this translated into native languages, but that's a, a really difficult process. Uh, the number of native speakers who are available for those kinds of projects and have the time and ability to commit to it without a lot of potential financial reward. That's a, that's a short list. And I've always said that any any versions that get translated into an indigenous language, I'll make the PDF of those versions free. Like those are always just going to be free. Oh, that's awesome. But doing a hard, a hard bound run of, of something, uh, you know, like a, a version of my language in Silaji, like I would love that. I would love to see that printed up, but that's a huge, huge cost investment for without probably a lot of return. Right. Cause how many people are going to be able to read it? Kiowa is from what I read before I die, it will probably be an extinct language. Yeah. Which, I don't know. Which is, it. God, like, that's tragic. That is tragic. I know. It hurts. Yeah. And it, it makes me want to like go out uh, East and go and see if I can't like learn yeah. some of it at yeah. least. I don't know. Like, but who has that kind of time and money to be able to like take that time I've, off? I've taken some Cherokee language lessons and, and these languages are not easy, right? And especially no. if you're if you're over 25 or so, it's difficult to pick up a new language pretty easily. So it's it's uh it's an uphill climb. I can speak, you know, a few dozen words of, of Cherokee and that's it. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. But uh that's um, more than me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I um uh so we're working on a Portuguese translation for down in Brazil. Uh, we're working on a Italian translation. I was reached out, uh, an Italian publisher reached out to me. Um, cool. But what I really want to do next is um, both a Spanish translation and uh, French Canadian translation. I think those are really important for reaching indigenous audiences. I'm, I'm making some headway on those, but nothing official yet. And it's, it's going to be a while before those get translated. Um, they're, That's they're, really they're, cool. It's pretty beefy projects when you talk about RPGs because you, you get into a lot into the, the game mechanics and you can't just run those through a translator. So, Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. wife's a school teacher and she works 
like white people are very much the minority at her school, which is awesome. So, oh, wow. so many different languages. Yeah. And she'll try and use like Google Translator or something. And so often it'll be like, that, uh, that did not translate right. Or she'll get an email from a parent that used Google Translator to translate from, you know, like yeah. whatever it is to English. And she's like, that can't be right. That can't be what they meant. Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's not like a simple process. And especially with rule books in general, right? There's so much nuance in certain. There's a lot of nuance words. there. Yeah. 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 And this book is not small by any means no it, it got out of control fast like i i honestly i had probably another hundred pages easily that i could have put in there from myself and from various writers and i i just said guys we, we have to cut this back i mean it was originally described on the on the kickstarter and i think it still might say it on the kickstarter that it was going to be 300 pages um and it's i think i don't even remember what it is now it's almost 500 i think or i have it right in front of me something like that it's Almost 500 from yeah. here, 470? Yeah, somewhere in there. But yeah, it's 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 a beast of a book. And we sort of realized that like we just couldn't, especially because we wanted to keep it at 14 point. We were getting a lot of compliments about like the legibility at 14 point. We just realized that we couldn't we couldn't pack any more in. And we, we were like, let's save it for the sequels. You know, the sequels. Yeah. <laughs> Which you but. recently, you know, did. You recently had your, oh, well, uh, Stories of the Front Kickstarter. Yeah, that was on it was, was on Game Backer Time, was Kit. It? Backer Kit. There we yeah, go. Yeah, on Backer Kit. We moved over to Backer Kit. Um we we might go back to, to Kickstarter depending on how things go with Kickstarter. Um, but I, I really love the folks at Backer Kit and they've treated me really well. The, that was another pleasant surprise because we for the stories of the Freeland, that was originally just gonna be 10 stories for Coyote and Crow. I wanted to get them out as fast as possible for folks because I, I wanted them to land originally right around the time that people were getting their physical books. And it was supposed to be a 10-story digital package for the game from 10 different authors and 10 different artists. There were a whole bunch of delays we had internally that sort of pushed the project back to right around the time that our story guide screen, the, the uh, GM screen, and our our new dice game, Nasi, were coming out. And the folks at Backer Kit said, we're, we're doing this whole beta where we're doing uh, crowdfunding, but we really don't want to do digital-only products. We really want to test our system and to be able to fulfill physical projects or uh, uh, products. Is there anything that you could add to your digital uh, uh, goals here? And so I tacked on the story guide screen and, you know, uh, you know, people missed the first Kickstarter. They could tack on the book and then night dice game. And so that ended up, we ended up doing like almost $200,000. It was like $172,000. And for something that was primarily a digital product, that was huge. That was a huge vote of confidence from, from my fans that they were willing to back those, those digital stories. You know, yeah. you, don't hear, you don't hear that too often from, you know, a, a company where they're doing a digital Kickstarter and they make over a hundred grand. So, yeah. Yeah. That is huge. And this, it totally makes sense to me because just reading the core rule book, uh, I haven't mm. even finished the entire thing yet. Um, I had to take a break to <laughs> do some other stuff, but yeah. I'll get back to it. There's so much story to it. Like mm. you'll be reading and then there'll be maybe like three or four pages of story that relates yeah. to why this rule works this way or why like the world works this way. And it is yeah. beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I wrote like pretty much every day I had, would have a conversation with either my editor or one of my writers or, you know, my layout person. And my goal was always 
as much as this game can feel a little crunchy and involved, I really want it to speak to a person who's never played a role-playing game before. It's certainly not an easy game, but I wanted to sort of handhold the reader through, through not only the entire world building that I was doing, but the rules and mechanics and how to play a role-playing game all the way through. And I know that folks who have a lot of experience playing RPGs probably are going to speed read through the, some of that stuff. But considering I, I really, my, my dream audience for this is an all native audience who's never touched an RPG before, I, I wanted to make sure that the writing was aimed at them uh, and making sure that they felt welcome into that, into this hobby space. So, yeah. And I think that's very well done. Uh, I, I am somewhat newer to RPGs, actually, mm. probably within like, I dabbled in it in high school and mm -hmm. I had a friend or two after high school. My brother was a, the DM, like forever DM. And, and I would occasionally get to hop in one of his games, but like never dedicated yeah. to it. I always yeah. just enjoyed it. So probably the last like three years, I think uh, two, three years, I've really dived into them. And, and this is, I think uh, I do a bunkers and badasses actual play podcast, which is the borderlands thing. Uh, and I love that one because it's funny. The, core rule book you can't read that without laughing like there's so much <laughs> comedy in there um and this one but this one i think is a the most immersive most mm. beautifully written beautiful art like this thing is a masterpiece so um Thank you. i i think i got so excited i think that we forgot to even introduce what coyote and crow was oh so, yeah do you want to do that didn't we? Didn't we? <laughs> that's my bad <laughs> That's all I right. just got so excited to talk about it. Uh, yeah, why don't you uh, like kind of share what it is? Yeah, yeah. So um, I am the owner and creator of uh, Coyote and Crow Games. Our core core product is Coyote and Crow, the role playing game. Um, it is a uh, science fantasy RPG set in an alternate history where um, colonialism never took place due to a massive climate event uh, in the far past that altered the course of history on earth. And what you have now is a futuristic setting and set in uh, about a hundred years in the future where both North and South America have sprung up with completely new different cultures uh, as a result of lack of colonialism and a complete change of weather and history. And so you end up with a game that has sort of indigeneity baked into its futurisms and uh, some, some, maybe some nods to things like cyberpunk, but I, I don't describe the game as cyberpunk because it doesn't have sort of the heavy capitalist foundation that cyberpunk is built on or, or corporatist foundation. But, uh, but yeah, so it's a, it's a, uh, it's got its own game system. It's not built on um, D20 or anything like that. And, uh, and yeah, we had a successful Kickstarter in March of 2021. And since then we put out about five other things. Uh, we're growing rapidly into the board game side of things because I feel like financially board games are much more accessible to indigenous crowds. And as a company, one of our goals is to both uh, hire and work with as many Native American folks as possible on the creative side of things and, on, and the production side of things as well. And then also speak to Native audiences uh, and, and, and show them better representation in, in modern gaming. That is interesting that you say um, the board games are more accessible to native crowds because I've like tried to kind of connect with more native people throughout the, the board gaming world. Yeah. And there's I don't have a lot of success with it, but I think because of Kyle and Crow, I can go to the TTRPG side of things and I can find way more people now, yeah. which yeah. is fascinating and awesome. Yeah. 
that's been that's been the big battle for me marketing wise is is it's been it's been lovely and and rewarding and welcoming on the RPG side of things to market this book and I've found a lot of support and friends and fans um, where I haven't been able to break through as well as on the the native side of things and I think partially that's because uh, a lot of tribes and nations are sort of siloed culturally and communication wise. We can talk about pan Indian movements all we want, but the reality is is that we are somewhat isolated from uh, within our within our tribal circles. And then additionally, I think there's you know the 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 sort of expendable income question, which is you, you're talking about a lot of folks who don't have as much money and can they drop you know seventy dollars on a book for a game they've never played before? Like that's a high barrier to entry. So I think bringing in games like Nasi, which is our first dice game at twenty dollars, and it's a game that's you can learn in less than five minutes. I think games like that are going to help bridge that gap, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I definitely could see that. Uh, and that's really cool. I know that during the first campaign, you donated a certain amount of books. Like it was like every, yeah, kind of a stretch goal, right? Like every yeah, yeah. So amount no, it, was, it was it wasn't even a stretch goal; it was a pledge level. You could uh, backers could pay oh. to donate a, a book to a tribal library, uh, community center, or school. And we're still we're still shelling out those donations. I mean, I'm literally sitting on a stack of inventory that is slowly going out. I just shipped out, I think, five more today to some libraries and schools. That's going to be an ongoing project for a long time. I, I was I'd originally hoped that I would be able to sort of send them out in bulk and be able to do it in a, in a grand singular gesture. But the logistical reality of that just isn't playing out. So it, instead, it's this slow trickle process. But that that is something I w- would really like to call up to your listeners. If you have any anybody who is a school, library, or community center, native or not, please uh, go to our website and there's a, a coyoteandcrow.net and there's a, a form there that they can fill out. The li- listener can't fill it out. The school or the library has to fill it out. But if you send your library or school or community center to that spot, they can fill out a form and request a free copy. Um, and, and that includes shipping. Oh, that is awesome. I know I actually have a few listeners that are very involved in their library system and like okay. somewhere on the board and stuff. So I'm calling on you. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> if they, you know, if you already please, haven't, please, I want to give them out. <laughs> yeah, that is that's incredible. I love that. Uh, well, how about how's Nasi doing? Uh, Nasi's. I I don't really know how it's doing as far as sales. Uh, we, it's really only been out a little. Well, coming coming up on two months, I'm probably going to start doing some sales analysis here in the next week or so. But I I, I think it's doing. It's one of those games that's doing fine, and I think it's going to do better. As time goes on, I didn't put a whole bunch of money into a marketing splash for this. Again, it was originally sold as a as a, a tack on to the crowdfunding campaign for Stories of the Freelands, and and we had a very sort of soft retail release uh, right at the end of November. So we might have gotten in some holiday sales, but um, but really, it's it's. For me, that game is a, a launching point for conversations down the line. Um, it's a great way to get folks in who have never played the RPG to say, "Hey." This game is a game that's played by the people in the world of Coyote and Crow. We can just sit here and play this game and you can get a, a slice of life here and you can play for five minutes and kind of pick up the vibe. I also set it up very specifically as an alternative to the Q Workshop custom dice set we have. So we have a very fancy dice set for the game that's 12, uh, 12 12-siders for the role-playing game. And $30, again, is a really high price point for some folks. And while we have a free mobile app that will do dice rolling, for you for the game. We also, I also really wanted to make an accessible uh, set of dice for folks for at a lower price point. 
So the dice set that's in Nasi is exactly a dice set you need for the RPG. So if you can't drop 30 bucks, you know, for the custom stuff, you can go out and be cheap with it. But um, so yeah. I'm, I, I'm sure there's some folks out there that are probably picking up just because they want a set of dice too. Uh, and the fact that it's a game is just a, a bonus. Um, but we'll see. Uh, it's it's uh, So far, it's gotten positive feedback. Uh, and we'll see how the numbers do. I mean, that's what I more want. You know, we don't need to go over numbers here and, yeah. <laughs> and dredge all that up. But I think that I, I've looked at it and I do plan on ordering it here actually soon. I'm going to, I don't know. I've been debating about the custom dice for like a two months. Uh, so I put it on my Christmas list and I was like, well, they're really pretty. Want, they're but... really, really pretty. Um, they are. Yeah. I'm not as much of a, 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 a dice slut as some people are. Like I, I usually, I, I have a core set of dice that I love to play with and I will find ways to use them for pretty much every, every game I'm playing with. But yeah, I know quite a few folks who will go out and buy a new dice at the drop of a hat, you know? Yeah. So. That, I mean, like my players, I have one of my players who goes and buys like dice monthly, I think. Uh, and then there's me who like, I have one dice set that I bought and I think the rest have been gifts. So uh, <laughs> yep. Yep. that's just, yeah. I'm like, you know, these work. I don't believe in curses <laughs> or dice jail or anything. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Kyle and Crow, how did, with building that world, um, you started that, right? Like, did yeah, you start yeah. with that core concept and then start hiring people on to like add to it or? What was yeah. That so I, I wrote out probably the first, I don't know, two or three drafts myself entirely. And I, when I went into the first draft, I knew that I was going to eventually be bringing on other writers and writers who had specifically had different cultural experiences than I did and were from different nations and tribes. I wanted that sort of global perspective, right? Or continental perspective. I, I drafted out everything that I wanted in the core game and everything I knew I wanted to include, the alternate timeline, the basic setting concepts, all of the basic technology, all of the rule systems. And then I had other writers come in and start filling in the gaps and rounding it out. I mean, we had folks that, you know, created the fictional language, Chalky that's in game. And all of the other, uh, like I had one writer, Wayote, who wrote, um, all of the fictional content for the area called the Freelands, which is sort of in the, the middle of America right now. Uh, so all these uh, fictional cultures that, that sprung up um, after the climate disaster. Yeah, it's, it's probably about five or six writers besides myself who contributed, but I would say I probably I probably wrote 80% of the words, 85% uh, of the words in a book and and acted as an art director as well. I was I was the one wrangling all of the artists and making sure that all the art was on point. That was really important to me too, not only to get as many native artists involved as we could, but the subject matter. One of the things that I, I really called out to my artists that was important to me was showing things besides just ripped people in combat. Like I just didn't want like sexy people blowing stuff up. Um, <laughs> that's fine. I mean, hey, I love me that too. But I thought it was important to convey concepts of things like family and elders and community. You know, I made it a point to have folks who are disabled or uh, are pregnant or are living with multi-generational households. I think all of those things, are, like if you don't if you don't show people them, they're not going to think of those think in those terms when they play the game. And I think because we a lot of role players default to the sort of D&D murder hobo party, you know, they're going to take a character, they're going to optimize it, and they're just on a mission to kill or, you know, take or whatever it is. 
And this game is a lot more about family and about community, uh, I think, than many other RPGs are. Yeah, I think that is very well written in the book. And that comes across like when I started reading it, I had my ideas of kind of what it would be. And that evolved very, very quickly oh, and good. being and seeing the potential that the yeah. like stories that could be told yeah. with this. Uh it was it was really fascinating. Like like I think as a storyteller, right? In your game, you're you've got the storytellers and then the what are the players called? Players. Just players. Oh, just players. Okay. I thought there was another name for some reason. Uh yeah. So you have like the storytellers are the GMs, right? Yeah. You're, you're uh, running the game but like as you read through the stories you can't help but like start to form your own world or like yeah see how you could insert that into the game absolutely uh, i don't i don't see how anyone could just skim through this i actually uh, i had originally planned to like skim through and get like a the like a the quick and skinny of it you know sure. but immediately i was like drawn in i was like nope I can't skim this. Like that's an impossibility, but uh, going back to the artist thing. So I know one of your artists, Tate. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't know them personally or anything, Hmm. but I, on Twitter, I follow them. And I think that was one of the things that drew me to them was that they didn't draw just like sexy versions of, of characters, you know, like they had curves. Um, they're, they really like borderlands. And so they draw borderlands characters and they have, curves to them and i'm like these are awesome like yeah tate's great uh if i if i I could be wrong but i'm pretty sure tate did our our um our piece on dear woman uh we have dear woman in the game as a as a character you can encounter and i love that she's like you know tate said can i can i draw dear woman as someone who's curvier and fuller than you know she's usually portrayed and i said yeah please like that's that's great you know i want to get different body styles in there i want to get different takes on things I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I I love. I think our cover art characters are sexy as hell. But I think <laughs> they are. They, you know, I think even they. I, I think they're they're not overly sexualized. And and I I specifically called out to my artist. I said I really want the person who's on the cover. I want one character who's who's very obviously feminine appearing appearing. Um, and then I specifically want somebody who is not focused on their gender. They they have maybe some masculine, some non-binary qualities, some feminine qualities. Let's make them more a potential two-spirit character. And I think they nailed that really well. Yeah, I agree. I I have the book right in front of me. And it's like, yeah, they are very uh, androgynous. Androgynous, Androgynous, yeah, yeah. Don't know why and I can't, can't flow exactly off the what I wanted. It's like, you know, we, we get enough Conan types on the cover. That's fine. We can all, we, hyper-masculinity is fine. We, um, I, you know, I think our plenty of RPGs have the, the sexy femme fatale in the character. And I think we just kind of went a different direction. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's great and wonderful and welcoming uh, as somebody. So I have like, Oh, I have a one star as my note listeners know, I have a one star review on my podcast that talks about, uh, I can't support an outspoken leftist. Like, a, <laughs> you know, they have problems with being woke and that's fine. This yeah. show isn't for you probably. And yeah. this game probably isn't for you, but it should be for you. You should open your minds and really like be open to other views. But yeah. have you had, how much uh, like retaliation have you had about like being woke mm. or have you had much of that? I, I think surprisingly little has been in my face. Very little of it has been in my face every once in a while. But what's surprising to me is, is that I expected a lot of backlash uh, to my face early on from both folks on the far right and folks within uh, native communities who are suspicious 
rightfully so, of, of people who were just sort of suddenly stepping up and creating a native product or a product that has native influences or references in it. I, I totally get that suspicion. I didn't really get much from either of those either of those sides, uh, and, and, and that was surprising to me. I did make the mistake, though, of doing some Google searches um, for both Kiting Crow and my name outside of like direct uh, communications, and that was a mistake, and I will never go do that again. There are definitely some 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 far-right folks out there that have a real beef with Oh, and no. That's fine. I'm, there, I was never going to be their crowd anyway, so I don't really care about getting their dollars. That's fine. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's interesting, though. I'm glad to hear there hasn't been like too much you know i yeah in the tt in the D world you almost yeah. can't go a day without seeing somebody be like oh they've gone woke oh yeah stop shoving this down our throats so i'm relieved to hear that uh, this is yeah a- and, and i'm gonna give some of that to to sort of like uh let's call it um i don't know uh, privilege to being male I, I i would be willing to bet that if i were a woman i'd be getting a shit ton more flack that's probably very fair to say yes yeah. uh yeah. sadly <laughs> I think the internet trolls out there feel a little more empowered to to pick on women uh, or obligated to pick on women even maybe. I don't know. But I think maybe because I'm a guy, it's a little less. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and that is interesting because I have seen I follow some artists. I love I love art, uh, but I've seen some female artists draw women very masculine and they will get so many trolls that are like too muscular, too many, <laughs> you know, like they just go to town on those attacking those, but then like a male will draw the same type of thing and they get nothing, yeah. you know, like, yeah, exactly. That is fascinating. And I hadn't sadly, you know, it's the privilege thing. Yeah. Um, of not seeing that, which speaking kind of of that, like I am very whitewashed. Like I, I present yeah. very white. I never, I had the privilege of never like being judged on my skin. Same here. Yeah. And I think that that is one of like, with my family, there's two cultures we've always kind of celebrated was the religious mm. side, Native American side. Like okay. The rest of, I, I don't know. I, I do know like some um, history on other sides. Sure. But, um, but those are like the two that we always celebrated. I don't do the religious side anymore. Yeah. And part of that is because of my like growth with the Native American side. Um, you know, nice. there's still spiritual sides, but like Mormons and Native Americans, mm. that's mm-hmm. not a there's a there's a history there so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure for sure um, <laughs> so anyways uh, we we won't get into that but <laughs> uh, i think like i especially appreciated your campaign and um in the most recent one you had pictures of your uh contributors and a lot of mm. them and it said what tribes they're a part of mm-hmm. or all that yeah. and a lot of them are white presenting and that made me feel so much more comfortable oh, good. And, and like at peace of being like good Yes, yeah. I'm okay to say this. I, I think there's there's a, a, a long history within native circles of, of of making white people or sorry white passing people feel invisible within their own tribes, and I, I that's something we all have to deal with. I, you know, I certainly have to deal with it, and it's it can be tough for sure. It's not a it's it can be it can be painful for some folks. And and at the flip side, you know, like folks who are darker skinned are having to deal with the racism that comes from outside the tribe for that. So, uh, you know, I I have certainly benefited from being uh, a a white passing man and somebody who, you know, I haven't gotten picked on for my Native American heritage or my Mexican heritage. I've really benefited from that. What I, I don't even know if I'd be sitting here right now if I hadn't had some of those those benefits along the way. 
So uh, I, I'm trying in my company to give as many folks as possible a leg up who want the leg up into the game industry, who are, are, are indigenous and, and want that. And I certainly don't judge on enrollment status, which is a whole complicated story. I certainly don't deal with blood quantum. And, you know, I, I try to give folks, you know, just a leg in if they're trying to get it. I think that on this show, I've talked about the heritage on my side. They had listed nationality as ruddy for my great, like great, great uncle or something. Um, when he like left the reservation or something and he had to like register with the States. Wow. And they did that so that it would like complicate getting any sort of like reparations or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, that kind of stuff happens. There's that discrimination and yeah. ah. Yeah. A system that was built anyway. Sorry, I, I could yeah. go off on. We could have a whole thing, right? We could do a whole episode on that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just like that. Ben, you know, like sadly, and I have uh, an easier life than a lot of many others because of yeah being white. Well, and, so. and, and I'm going to use this opportunity to 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 uh, toot my horn on something that I, I try to mention when I can on on any interview, and that is, is I, I get folks who come up to me at cons or wherever and they'll say, Oh, well, um, I have such and such ancestry in my family tree, but I don't claim it. That always makes me really sad because I, the first thing I think of is, is I think of like speaking to your ancestor who's from that tribe and going, yeah, I know you exist, but I'm turning my back on you. I'm not saying everybody should go around claiming privileges or taking benefits, but I think that, you know, if you if you do care about that portion of your ancestry and that and that relative, then you owe it to them to maybe engage in it a little bit more. I don't think there's any natives out there who don't want to see their culture engaged in. We want to see our cultures thrive and survive and do well. We just don't want it taken from us inappropriately. That's all. Yes, I, I think most natives I know are excited to share their culture. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think uh, in talking about like my native heritage a little bit more is I've had one person came to me and was like, Oh, like, I love that you talk about that. Like I'm so white presenting that I feel really guilty talking about like this. And then we talked for like an hour and they were telling me like, you know, the thing, the interactions that they've had, like with their family and the things that they did growing up and what they've looked into it. And I'm like, you put so much like time and effort into like, that's great. Your history. Yeah. Like, you have this very rich history. There's no shame in that. Like share yeah. it, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I, so I have a large, uh, like a debt of gratitude to you for helping me even come more to terms with that. Thank you. Um, thank you. So no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the new stuff that you put out. So there were 10, the, what was the, um, stories of the freelance stories of the freelance things. Yeah. Um, yeah. with those, there were 10 stories and now eight are available that you could buy at this point, or is it eight? And so they haven't, they haven't released yet. We're, we're going back through uh, and, and doing okay. some more development on them um, and a little bit of writing or not. Uh, I'm sorry, not writing, uh, editing, uh, a little more editing and, and the final layout process. So they're the, the, the full 10 uh, will be released to backers here, hopefully pretty soon. And then once those are released, uh, we'll release eight of the 10 for retail, uh, for down, digital download, probably through both my web store and through drive through RPG. Uh, and then slowly we'll, we'll start releasing them out onto Roll20 and Foundry as well. Perfect. Um, 
eventually. But uh, but yeah, so they'll, they'll, that's the next thing uh, that we're going to be releasing. Um, and then for 2023, we actually have a lot of stuff planned that I'm pretty excited about. And that's that's kind of where I'm throwing my full weight right now. Uh, the stories are kind of done for the moment, so I can't, uh, I mean, not, there's done, there's done uh, as they can be as as far as I'm concerned, like I don't have a direct role anymore. I've got a great editor and a great layout person working on them. And so they're, they're taking care of it, but I'm focusing on the rest of the stuff for 2023. So. That's really exciting. Did, yeah. Can you yeah. tease any of it or uh, not? Yeah, yet? absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so what I'm, I'm personally working on and I'm diving into hard right now is Kite and Crow's first setting book. And I can't say the name yet. And, uh, but what I can say is that it's, unusual for a setting book in that it uh, it'll be a full-size hardback book uh it's focused on a single location um single small area and it's going to be a a whole collection of characters and backgrounds and settings and adventures and story ideas and concepts that are all sort of tied together into this one place and there's a lot more to it than that but again i, I can't spoil anything yet right now but uh, i'm really excited for that it, i'm going to be taking a much much more direct role on a lot of that project, uh, partially because I, I feel like the book has a lot of mysteries to it and a lot of secrets. So I don't want to hand a lot of that off to a lot of writers and have a large pool of people who are involved in the mysteries. I think mysteries work better when you have a smaller team. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> what is it um, uh, like? Two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, then we have two other games that are going to be completely standalone tabletop games coming out. My again, my goal is to have all of all three of these at least crowdfund this year uh, in twenty twenty three. I don't know if they'll all deliver this year, but we're we're going to work on that. Um, so the the first one is, uh, I guess this is technically going to be in a uh, uh, an announcement here because I haven't announced this uh, to anybody yet. But uh, uh, we're going to be having a tabletop game called Wolves, and uh, uh, it's just coincidence that there was also recently another tabletop game called The Wolves that came out. Uh, but this has nothing to do with that game, and they're not even like vaguely like each other. No one's going to have a problem confusing these two games. The uh, game is a a three to six player. A semi-cooperative tabletop game that involves uh, gifting economies. The idea is it's a game about community survival. Uh, I'm not going to get in too much to the details on the rules, but basically the basic concept is is uh, every player is the leader of a community, and every player both needs and produces resources. All the players at the table have to make it through a full year of uh, going from spring through winter. They have to make it through a full year of survival. If any community fails to meet their needs and, and doesn't doesn't make it through the winter, all players lose. So you have a you have a very direct incentive to make sure other players make it. It's not fully cooperative, however, though, because like in a gifting economy, there is status to be gained for the person who is magnanimous enough to gift things to other communities that they need. So at the end of the game, if all players have survived, then the player with the most status is then nominated as the chief of all communities, but only then. So if anybody fails, everybody loses. Yes. Yeah. So that's, uh, so that's, that's uh, coming here soon. Uh, we're, we're actually in the final testing phases on that now and heading into the layout and art. In fact, I should have a, a cover art before the end of the month. And I'm, ex I'm really excited about that one. 
And I think we're going to do something similar to the book donation for that as well, where uh, we're going to potentially offer folks a pledge level where they can buy a copy for a, uh, a school or um, a, a library or a community center. But rather than uh, at that point, then like being like the donation system that I had in place for the book, it will just be uh, you'll include the, the school information and the school can just reach out to me and have it shipped directly to them. And that will be that that way we'll, we'll, we will have this backlog problem that we have with the with the donations for the books. Look at Yeah, you learn as you go, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. make it a little smoother. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds incredible. I love yeah. I'm a cooperative guy. So semi co-op hits better than competitiveness. I mean, I love competitive. Yeah. Too, but yeah. Like, yeah, that sounds incredible. I am really excited about that. I bet if I if you need people to do previews of it or something or review oh, type stuff. Thank you. Yeah. I would be happy to do an episode dedicated to it, but you know, we can work all that out yeah. later if, sure. if you're interested. But. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 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 That would be great. Um, yeah. So that's, that one's, I'm, I'm really excited about that. It's one I de- the rules entirely are, are developed by me. Nasi was co-developed by like, I'm the primary designer on Nasi, but it was also developed by uh, Daryl Andrews who did Sagrada and a bunch of other games. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you know Daryl, but um, yeah. uh, so Wolves is going to be the first game that I, I have sole designer credit on. And I'm, I'm excited for that. Uh, I'm a little nervous about that. But uh, uh, and then we've, we've got another game coming down the pipe. Uh, I don't want to say I can't say too much about that one yet. And we don't even have a, actually have an official name for it. But uh, as a placeholder, we're going to call it the Coyote and Crow card game. It is a constructible, non-collectible card game. Uh, competitive, two to four players. The idea is is every player has a large pool of cards and they pick a faction uh, and the factions are based on the fictional nations that we put into the RPG. So this is tied very much to the world of the RPG and it's going to have heroes and equipment and all kinds of things. And the idea is, is rather than attacking or just straight up combat between you and the other players, Instead, you seed your own deck with challenges that are worth victory points. But those challenges go to the center of the table and other players can attempt to solve them before you. So you're trying to build your own deck in a way that makes it optimized to solve your own problems. But you might have to divert and solve other people's problems too. And so sometimes it might be it might be defeating a mythological monster or it might be a political issue or it might be a resource shortage, but however your deck is built is hopefully gonna be able to help you solve those problems and get to a victory point uh, before the other players do. Wow, that sounds really cool too. You hit another love of deck building there, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> who doesn't love a good deck builder? And yep, that sounds absolutely. like a really unique take on it. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's uh, I I love uh, so I'm a huge fan of Android Netrunner. In fact, the two prints behind my head here are both from Android Netrunner, and it really it really sort of affected a lot of my my concepts around game design and in what I love. And that one's very hardcore, two player, straight up head to head competitive. I wanted to get the feeling that I get from that game, the the feeling of satisfaction and the feeling of enjoyment and the feeling of um, uh, I would spend hours prior to playing Netrunner, just building different decks out. And like, unlike a standard deck building game where you have like maybe a market that people buy from or whatever, you don't do that in constructible deck games. So you're actually building your deck out beforehand, choosing the, you know, 50 or whatever cards it is, 
building that deck out and going, this is the deck I'm playing with. And you don't know what the other person is playing with. You don't know what, what deck they've got. So that, that feeling of like, I can't wait to see how my deck pairs up with that other person's deck is, is uh, something I really love. Yeah. That's really fascinating to me. You know, like I love my Arkham horror, my Marvel champions, yeah. those yeah. type of things. And so to have that be a little more like head to head. Yeah. Uh, sounds very fascinating to me. So Yes. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly when that one's going to come out. Part part of that is so so mechanically we're we're really far along on the design. Um, I actually brought in so I, I did really something really interesting with this one. I paired up an experienced game designer, someone who worked actually on Netrunner for Fantasy Flight, with an indigenous game designer who had done some small stuff, but had never really broken into the industry before. And so I paired them up together, and they co-designed this together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't have a hand in the design at all other than giving approvals. So uh, and it's sort of giving them their general marching orders and go, this is kind of the goals I'm going for here. Take off and do what you do. What you do. But uh, but yeah, really, now it's going to be about art. I mean, with this many cards, you know, you're, you're talking about a lot of art and artists. And I think that's going to be that's going to be challenging. You know, when uh, <laughs> I had some folks actually suggest to me when the whole AI art thing just started up that I should use AI art for the card game. And I think that's that's obviously out. I mean, we put out a statement about the fact that we're not going to be using AI art for anything. But yes, um, yeah, I saw that. It's certainly tempting to throw it in for prototypes while I'm building out, you know, just just to kind of have something on the card. But I don't even think we'll bother with that at this point. <laughs> um, but just, you know, sheer art, art uh, uh, production timelines, you know, are, are enough that I'm not really sure when that's going to be ready to go for crowdfunding. Well, that's exciting yeah. still. Yeah. Keep an yeah. eye out, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you should go to, I think the it's on your site, the Coyote and Crow site, you have your statement on AI art, which I think yes. is very well stated because it's not so black and white. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very passionate about my statement and I hope it comes off across as specific, but also addresses the nuances I think of the situation. Um, I wasn't trying to be vague in that statement or play any mind games, but I do think it's here to stay. And I think the question is, is how do we engage with it in a way that that is responsible and in a way that doesn't penalize artists who are out there trying to make a living? And, and uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of that is out of our hands, right? Like it's going to end up going to like probably huge lawsuits that take years to, to, to finish off. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean... I have my opinions on that, like, it, but uh, yes. well, I, I don't think I've ever said it um, on here. Have I said it publicly? Anyway, I like I think that they should have had like a group of artists dedicated to it. Like and so that anytime it mm. uses their art, they get royalties. Yeah. Um, so if if the AR, AI art draws from so and so, they yeah. get a percentage of that sale. Um, but as it is now, a lot of them just pull from the internet and they can pull from, they're like, they just get yeah. uploaded art and art gets stolen. And so there's no opt the in or problem. even opt out option. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's yeah. the, the worst part. And yeah, like they could have open sourced it and been like, Hey, we're building this AI art, uh, submit some yeah. artwork to it. And, you know, like submit your own artwork to it and yeah. we can pay you, you know, it might be pennies or whatever. I don't know exactly, but uh, at least they would be making some money, but as it grows and grows, those pennies will add yeah. up. And yeah. yeah, 
I, I don't foresee that happening, but I, no. I, what I actually foresee happening is I think that there's going to be a change in the way that data is collected. Currently, the, the, the concept that the, the AIs are pulling the art and looking at tags on the art and you know doing classic scraping techniques, that is in its infancy along with how the AI formulates its art, right? So I think both of those concepts are going are gonna to expand. Um, I think the... I can't remember if I put it in the in the article or not, but when I was first uh, doing some research on the AI stuff, I saw a, um, a there was a photo of um, data from Star Trek: The Next Generation painting, and I said, "Does data or whoever I guess Doctor Soon does Doctor Soon owe royalties to the artists that data is inspired from?" In other words, he's technically like. I'm not trying to 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 pick this apart, but is data scraping the art that he looks at when he looks at art and then gets ideas for what to paint? Has he scraped that art and does he owe the people who own the rights to that art? Does he owe them royalties? And I, I'm not trying to be facetious when I say that, because I think that's where scraping is going to eventually lead if we get, you know, a robot in our house that looks at a painting on our wall and then creates another painting that it scraped that painting. You know? That is fascinating. Yeah, that is like such a deep thought about that. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, it is yeah. complicated. Yeah, absolutely. It is complex. I just want to make sure that that, that people who may, are making their living this way can still keep making their living. That's that's to me the most important thing. Yeah, and, and I have I've gone on record on this part of like I will always pay uh, any official art that I use will always be like a human being. I I've reached out to yeah. Tate actually, and they're going to do some art for friend and foe. Uh, and they gave me a price and they gave me a very honest price. And I was like, perfect. I will save up. Yeah. It was, it's expensive. And yeah. it's, it's like, that's worth it to me. I will save up. I'll yep. reach out again. And I will, but like other people I've had artists, my artists that did like our cover art for friend and foe, I paid them more than they asked for because they were definitely underselling themselves. Like, I value yeah. art and I will always like, if I don't think you're asking for a fair price, I'm going to probably negotiate you up. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I had an artist not long back that I reached out to that somebody that I not worked with before. And I, I said, you know, I'm looking for an 11 by 11 piece. And they came back with a hundred dollar quote when I asked them how much they wanted to charge or what, if they had going rates, because they were an established artist with a portfolio and a website. And so I assumed that they had rates for specific sizes. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, I, I man, I, I can't pay you a hundred bucks for that. I, I can't do it. I have a standard rate card and I'll just happily pay you the standard rate card because I don't want it ever coming back that like, you know, when two artists talk to each other and they did the same size and color piece and one got paid a different amount. I'm like, look, here's just a, here's what I pay for these sizes. Like, there we go. Yeah. Let's start there. Yeah. And I think that's totally fair. To, that's what you should do, right? It should be yeah. like a pretty standardized price uh, or, you know, based on exactly what it is. There's certain details yeah. that, it, yeah. you know, always willing to open a negotiation, but I don't want, I don't want any artist to ever feel like I undercut them or tricked them, you know? Yes. So, yeah, exactly. We got so like immediately we went right into like uh, into kind of open territory yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, but I want to go back and how you got into like board games and TTRPGs. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's like uh, usually the first thing. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It's true. It usually comes up right at the beginning of the conversation. Um, so yeah, so I, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, I was what the 80s kids called a latchkey kid. Um, so my mom was working mom and I grew up around my uncles and my aunt or my, uh, my grandmother rather a lot. And they were board gamers. Uh, so I grew up playing uh, like I think by the time I was five, I was playing like Stratego, chess and all the, you know, the, the classics like Clue Monopoly, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then probably around, I think I was, it must've been 1979, I think, maybe 1980. I got the uh, the D&D basic set uh, after I played it with a kid, a friend of mine in an elementary school, and we just latched onto it. Before you know it, I was playing, uh, you know, Gamma World and Boot Hill and all the old other original TSR classics. And then around 1984, Five, I guess I got into the um, the Milton Bradley Game Master series, which was uh, Axis and Allies, Fortress America. You know this whole big game series that you're they're playing, where it takes you know four to eight hours to play a game. But that was my big jump back into um, uh, into tabletop board gaming. They just sort of both grew in parallel. You know, I went through years of playing things like Palladium's Rifts for RPGs, and then into Vampire the Masquerade in the '90s. Uh, along with like Cyberpunk 2020. And then I, I sort of drifted out of tabletop games until around 2000, 2001. I think sort of when a lot of folks sort of got back into the hobby, when things like Catan and Ticket to Ride really started to land. Uh, games like Bang. Um, I remember playing a lot of Bang. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And, and so like just from there, it sort of took off. And it wasn't until... Um, I got laid off from a job back in 2012, whenever it was, early 2010s, and I ended up getting a job working for a uh, uh, local game store that was just opening up. So I helped them open. It's one of their first employees. Got to put all the you know their first inventory up on the shelves and see it open on opening day. I worked there for a couple of years, and I think that was actually sort of where I started to realize that there were some gaps in the hobby that I could contribute to as far as native representation. Uh, I started seeing either no representation or crappy representation of native cultures, um, usually from white people who had done nothing more than a Google search. And so I think by the time I landed at PSI, which was my next job, PSI is a uh, distributor and they work with probably, I don't know, probably 150 different publishers um, and they help distribute out games to either hobby game distributors or to Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, all over the place. When I came on with them, I ended up becoming an account manager and working with a ton of different folks from like Catalyst Game Labs, Wizards of the Coast, a whole bunch of folks. I That was the time where I got to really see things from the publisher side of things and really realize just how little effort was going into good representation in games. So that was 2016. So by the time 2018 rolled around, I'd kind of had enough and I decided to uh, to start doing something about it. And that's that was kind of the birth of Coyote and Crow. I, I realized that RPG was a great way to explain a setting in in, uh, in broad terms and get into a lot of detail along the way, where as where a board game, you get maybe a couple of paragraphs to explain the world you're building and you can't always tell the full story that you want to tell. So Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really cool, man. You have, it's like a lifelong lead up to this. Yeah. And it, it what's funny is I didn't, I never thought about it that way until people have asked me to give me that history. It just, it never even occurred to me, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool though. It's, it's 
great to be able to like work in your passion, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I, and that's what I feel really lucky about is that I'm doing something that I absolutely love and it can be exhausting, but man, I the fact that I'm actually able to make a living on a role-playing game right now, it, I wish I could go back and talk to my 13-year-old self and tell my 13-year-old self about this. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Um, with, with the distribution of things, uh, do you still work with them or? Uh, with PSI? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're actually now, I'm one of their clients. So when I told them that I was going to be quitting uh, because I was going to be doing Kite and Crow full time, they, they said, well, well, will you allow us to distribute your book? So I'm now back as one of their vendors. So That is so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked out well. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's good that there's that relationship too. That yeah, them being yeah. Like, we I was really to. flattered that they wanted to bring me on too, because they don't always necessarily bring on brand new publishers. They usually bring on publishers with established established sales. Um, so that was a real compliment. And that makes sense. Uh, maybe, maybe it makes sense for me, I guess. I don't know. But I'll see, like, I'll go to a bookstore somewhere. I was in Seattle and, or no, Portland. I was in Portland earlier this year and... I, we were just like wandering in the bookstore and I was like, you know, I'm going to go look at the RPGs. And I saw a copy of Coyote and Crow on there. And I was like, oh, nice. that's awesome. Like, I think I even took a picture with it somewhere. Nice. Being like, This is here. <laughs> Excellent. I love um, hearing that. Excellent. Yeah. So it's like I get to spot it. I've spotted it in the wild more often than I would have expected. Like um, good kind of other independent games like that. Don't I think uh yeah. aren't in those types of places yeah it's it's um it's it's a battle because your average mom and pop game store they're dealing with so many different games and titles so much news and so much stuff coming through uh at a certain point it just becomes kite and crow just becomes a uh you know a data point on a spreadsheet and if you don't know what your audience wants and you don't know whether or not you should buy something it's really hard over the summer, I took this big road trip and um, I made it a point to stop in game stores along the way. And I think uh, I stopped in at like 25 game stores and only five had heard of Coyote and Crow. Three of them had backed it on the Kickstarter and two of them had had purchased it through distribution. But that meant there were 20 game stores in there that didn't carry Coyote and Crow and had never even heard of it. Yeah. And uh, so there's obviously a lot of room to grow, right? Like there's room to make noise still. It's just difficult in this, in, in our current gaming environment, I think sometimes to make enough noise to be heard. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That makes sense. I'm going to jump back into Kion Crow while we're on that with, because yeah. uh, this, this is something I meant to bring up. I think you handled it so perfectly because while I was reading through the book, I was like, okay, so I'm the only native player in our group. Uh, how am I going to handle this? Trying to think of like the nose and, you know, like yeah. the OKs. And then I got to a certain point in the book and I was like, it's all written here and it's so perfect. <laughs> so I guess how did, because there's both for the, you have like a native um, players and story guide section and a non-native and how you approach yeah. that. So um, the so, origin yeah, so of the, that, the, I suppose. Yeah. So the, the, for the first thing we did is, is that we, we, uh, as a group, and I and I, I ran this by all of my writers and, and many of my artists and my editor, uh, and I said, you know, how do we want to sort of tonally approach this in a way that is is respectful of indigenous folks, inclusive of all tribes, 
and isn't going to be something that non-natives can sort of mangle unintentionally. Let, let's try to make this as idiot proof as possible. Right. I don't, I don't mean to call non-native people idiots, but like they're idiots as far as like not knowing the culture or not even knowing when they might step on some toes. So it's, trying to make it as foolproof as possible. Right. And what we did was, is I think the first thing we did was overall, we tried to fictionalize as much as possible and not include real world tribe tribal customs or issues in there. And that's part, partly because we didn't want people appropriating things who shouldn't be appropriating them. But it was also a case where I can't include tribal histories of all 550 plus nations in North America in this book. That would be another 10,000 pages. If I don't, if I can't include them all, I don't want to include any of them. We'll get into the, some of that in those the expansion books, the regional geographical expansion books. We can start talking about alternate histories for real world tribes. But for this one, I just I wanted to leave it broad so that it welcomed everybody in. Then the other thing that we did was is that like with things like the ceremony skill, we made it have a generic effect for players so that um, non-native players could use the skill and it just is a dice roll and has a mechanical function. But then gave native players the option and said, hey, if you're native and you have real world ceremonies or real world things you want to include, same with like herbalism, if you want to include this stuff. Um, and, and have a specific game mechanic effect, do it up. Just talk to your store guide and, and, and have, have that worked out in advance. And I think just, just those tiny little pivots, I think, make all the difference. Um, they give people yeah. options and, um, and ways to safely navigate. And, I, I know I, and I, what it really boils down to is I've told Native players this numerous times, is if you just play what's on the page, you are not going to be inappropriate. If it's, it's only when you start inserting your own bias into this book that you're gonna screw up and, and upset someone or, or or do something offensive. Yeah, for me, like, you know, being Kiowa, I was, when I'm building this story, um, spoiler or maybe teaser is that we're gonna do like an actual play run of this um, mm. for an arc. There'll be at least nice. an arc in Friend and Foe. And uh, just reading it, it's actually gonna be probably a pretty crucial thing for mm. our world. So it, it'll actually tie to what, the rest of the story. Oh, nice. So like, I couldn't help but do that as I was reading it because one of our like main big characters, this mysterious character is Native American. Mm. So like kind of her origin will come through a uh, coyote and crow arc. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. But like, yeah, I was working with that. And while reading that, it was like, okay, that makes me feel a lot more confident of like, I can just read this straight out to my players yeah. and say like, yeah, definitely don't do these things. Yeah, these things are okay because it's um, I, this is a very iffy thing. So uh, I remember last year because in C Canada, right, they call Native Americans first. They're it's First Nations, right? Um, and so in a uh, board game setting, somebody had called someone Native American, and then somebody attacked them and said they don't like to be called Native American. They're First Nations, and I was like, well, actually, like it's just actually, like oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like here, Canada, yes, First Nations. Here, yeah. Native American. And like my family, like, um, and and being around some Native Americans, like they call themselves Indians. And that's okay for them because that's, it's like right. whatever yeah. they set as the appropriate yeah. thing. I don't know. It's just, you, you yeah. have to like, it's what's okay with the people present. But when you're doing like a mass thing, you have to, I like how you created a language for it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that was really important too, uh, both the language and the name generator. I didn't yes. want non-native players to start slipping into, the, I think probably one of the easiest things that they could slip into that might be offensive is trying to come up with what they think are might be respectful and accurate Native American names. And yet they're completely butchering either the meaning or the linguistics behind it. And I was like, I, let's just let's just nip that in the bud and give them a fictional name generator, you know, yeah. so they can just stop doing that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think that was a perfect <laughs> thing to do, especially with this. What a man! What a tricky book you put together here. <laughs> like it's, it's it's navigating a very narrow channel, isn't it? It is, man. D were there certain things that you had to edit out? Oh yeah, yeah. There was there was a few things that, like for example, there was a whole there's a whole section where I went through um, a sensitivity reader besides. Native American readers, we also had a, a straight up just standard cultural sensitivity reader come through. And she gave us some advice on some of the sections where we were talking about sexuality and gender. And I absolutely appreciated her perspective. But I also came back and said, what you're doing right here is you're strapping on our real world cultural perspective into this fictional perspective. And what I'm actually trying to do is not have the real world current perspective. And I realize that maybe that makes it not ideal because real world players who are have this particular view of their gender and their sexuality are going to maybe have a see that as different. But I'm not trying to say it's different as in worse, just different as in different. Right. So um, it's, it's not the same world. It's through an indigenous lens. We kind of went back and forth on that. And in the end, I didn't. I didn't really include some of the stuff that she put in, uh, and I'm and I'm glad I didn't. Not not because she was wrong, but just because she was she was explaining what the real world is, and I don't want an explanation of the real world. So yeah, there were there were a few times when we had to to take things out like that. That is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm it's that in the minefield, right? Of like, and yeah. it's because it's totally unintentional, but we all have our own like lenses that we've built and yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think one of the, the biggest conversations we had was about the um, permanent ice cap that's on the map. If you look at the map of North America, the climate event has caused this massive ice sheet to come down and cover pretty much all of what is considered Canada. And so some of my, my first nations writers, their first question was, is, well, do we exist in this world? Like, and I, and I said, oh, absolutely. The whole point of having that ice sheet come down was, was twofold. One, it was to just create a sense of, of conflict. We, we need drama and conflict, right? So having climate change is in itself a dramatic conflict that we can have. It's, it's humans versus the weather, right? But then also you've got this situation where it's going to cause, because it didn't happen overnight, it just didn't show up. It, it, it's this thing that built up over time and it caused a migration. And then so what you have is uh, um, uh, different cultures clashing with each other. And I love that as conflict. Uh, it's one of my favorite things in science fiction is when two cultures butt heads and neither is right or wrong. They're just different. But because they're forced into close proximity, they're forced to deal with each other. And that was my my challenge that I gave to my writers. I said, you're alive. You're in this world. How do you deal with having been forced to move south? What what about your culture changed or adapted or, you know, uh, what, what what new things did you spring up because of this change? Uh, with mine, right, with Kiowa, eventually they got horses. And that is a huge thing for them that like 
made it so that they migrated more and more West and became like hunters yeah. and uh, they were already pretty fierce before people. But um, yeah, so now it's like, now there's the, the horses didn't come. So yeah. yeah. What do I, I do there? That, you know, like, that list, we have that list near the beginning of the book uh, of things that don't exist and whether it's, you know, it's cattle, horses, pigs, you know, coffee, all this stuff just does not exist in the Americas because it was brought over during colonialism. I think even a lot of natives are, are, are like, Oh God, like, Oh, oh man, I can't even imagine that. Like they've incorporated so much of that in a culture for the last few centuries. Like, yeah. So one of, one of my friends was like, no fry bread, no fry bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because that becomes kind of like a staple for a lot of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was like, oh, man. sorry, man, you take the colonialism out. You got the fried bread's got to go too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it, that's, I just, I love that. And I love that list too of like things you don't necessarily realize you wouldn't think about yeah. at first, you know, that's yeah. fascinating. I blew it on the coffee actually during one of my alpha tests uh, when I was, when I was role playing with a group online and uh, somebody, there was a, can, a drink canister and somebody said, can I check and see what's in the drink? And I said, coffee. And one of my players private messaged me was like, coffee's from Africa. <laughs> coffee did not exist. And I was like, I thought it was from South America. And they're like, no, it was brought over. <laughs> <laughs> that is see that that's so cool. You know, like you, yeah, it comes up. It's yeah. Those things that feel natural. Um, yeah. Yep. I feel like there was another thing with like tobacco, but mm. tobacco was like bread or like a, very different. There's very different strains, strains and yeah. uh, versions of, of tobacco that that indigenous folks are generally using. It's generally a lot less harsh um, than than what's used in like commercial tobacco strains. Now, I actually don't know the. I, I know there was a lot of of breeding or pollination or I forget what it's called when you're like interbreeding plants. But yeah, uh, there's a lot that. of that going on that that modern tobacco really doesn't resemble anything much that we used to use back then. So yeah. That was another one that I was like, oh, yeah, I, I yeah. forgot about that kind of thing. Yeah. Interesting. No alcohol. But, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We have talked a lot about that. Uh, yeah. I, we're already usually I hit an hour, hour 20, but are you good to keep <laughs> going for a little bit more? I'm happy to keep talking if you've got more questions. I, I realize you're going to edit down, too. So, but yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever you want to do, man, I'm fine. Cool. Um, well, what are you nerding out about? So this is a new kind of segment mm. for 2023. Uh, I haven't, I used to do this in my old podcast, but yeah. I never brought it over here. So nerding out, right? Like what, what board game or RPG thing are you nerding out? Ooh, about? So what, what board game am I nerding out on right now? Yeah. Um, so the board game I'm nerding out on right now is uh, Dune um, from Dire, the Dune Imperium from Direwolf Digital and Legendary. That game, I cannot seem to get enough of it. The choices involved in that game. Have you played it? I, yeah, I have. I okay. have it right here by me. Okay. Yeah, the, the choices you have in that game and the fact that it's technically a deck builder, but since you're only playing for 10 turns, the most you're going through your deck is maybe like four times or something like that. And you've only got like limited chances with each card. I find myself absolutely fascinated with that game. And the fact that it's a, literally a 10 point goal um, where, you know, First person to 10 wins, but you even might lose a point on the along the way there if somebody takes an alliance from you. It's, it's yeah, it's really fun for me. I really engage with that game a lot. Uh, the other one we're playing a lot of that's just really relaxing for me is Cascadia. I'm forgetting a publisher of that one off the top of my head, but 
Um, but yeah, Cascadia is amazing. It's just a really quick, simple tile and token plant laying game. And uh, it's it's pretty and it's it sort of scratches that same inch as Wingspan, but without being as complex or as long play as Wingspan is. It's got that very kind of chill vibe to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, those are flat out games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are the those are the two that I'm I've really enjoyed playing a lot lately. Um, and then RPG wise. So I'm I'm steeped right now heavily in uh, the Kite and Crow development for the next book. So that's kind of where my brain is at. But I will say that I have I've always had a very deep love of all things alien or aliens related. Uh, I grew up on the the films uh, and I've played all of I played the original like leading edge RPG from the early 90s and the board game and all the video games. Huge fan. I have back here the uh, the, the uh, freely publishing uh, RPGs for aliens and I'm my dream is to write a, a scenario for that, for that, for them. I, I'm going to, I'm going to crawl up their, continue to crawl up their butt until they let me do it. Um, <laughs> I have a very specific one in mind that I want to write. I've got a story percolating in my head that I can't wait to put down. So. Oh my goodness. Yes. I, that would be great. I got that last year and I have been so excited to eventually run that. Um, yeah. Cause yeah. it's I, alien is it's, such a cool world. It really is. It's a cool world. They they really do the the um, the cinematic version of the, of the of the of the storytelling that they do is really. I really like that. It's great at building suspense and tension. Yeah, it's a it's a good system. It's a lot of fun. Nice. That's good to hear because I yeah I haven't gotten to play it yet, but I'm excited to. Yeah. Um, Free League does some pretty good stuff. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of theirs. I'm a huge fan of their their layouts, their quality that they do, like both the quality of the mechanics of the game, but then also the physical quality of their products is really nice. They were they're sort of uh, if I weren't working for my own company, uh, I'd, I'd probably be begging them for a job. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. Amani Cook. But or who? Amani Cook Games. What do they I don't do? know if you know Monty Cook. Uh-uh. Um, they do Numenera um, and quite a few other books, but uh, um, they're, if, I, I would highly suggest checking them out. They to, yeah. are an RPG company that's done a lot of titles, but they're always really like thoughtful, imaginative games with really creative ideas and new fresh worlds. They, they tend to break that mold of doing just like wizards or spaceships. Like they, they go to, to other areas a lot. That's cool. And, uh, They've got some great writers over there. So I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah again, kind of newer to the RPG world. So I'm like more and more I'm expanding and expanding. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, out of curiosity, Wendigo Games uh, up in Canada, they're an all native team. Yeah. So we, we spoke a little while back and like, I think we, we spoke, I spoke to them when Coyote and Crow first, like first finished funding. And we talked a little bit about how we might cooperate but i i haven't really we haven't really followed up on it um well you both have your they seem like good folks um but i haven't had a chance to communicate with them that much that's all right different countries and different uh they have their big like arcleon arcleon oh gosh anyways well yeah they've got their big one they just yeah they're working on getting done you've got your big thing yeah yeah uh, I was just curious if there was any connections to you guys or if no, no, other than casual communication. No, I mean, nice. we are, we are partnering with a few different folks on some different stuff. Um, but none of those I can 
quite talk about yet. Like there's a yeah. few that we're probably going to be dropping announcements with soon. Some some big folks, some small folks. There are side projects going on. So awesome. And then during this part, I will for nerding out. I think I'll also say what I'm nerding out too. That way it gives people yeah. kind of like multiple things. Yeah. Yeah, what are you nerding out about? Board game-wise, for Christmas, I got the Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade game. Which nice. I, I'm, like, very picky on my anime, so but Cowboy Bebop, that it does it for me. Um, and I'm also a little bit of a miniature painter, so I painted all those miniatures before I played my first game, oh, played nice. it, and it's a really good deck-building game. Like, nice. su- surprisingly, I had mid-expectations for yeah. it, like mid-to-low expectations. Yeah. Uh, and it, it yeah. was it was a lot of fun to be able to build that up. And you're moving your characters. You always use always use all uh, you're always using the four main characters. Mm-hmm. But like you, if you're playing with less, you could move other characters into your space and you get gain their benefits and stuff like that. Nice. Um, and then you finish it off with the big fight against Vicious. He's the final bounty and really exciting. It's it, it's good. It's a solid That's game. That's great. So that's that one. That's what I've been nerding out board game wise. You know, that's, that's really good to hear, too, because a lot of times, especially when you're taking um, a, a, an IP or a, or a property from, especially when it's not from North America, if it's from Europe or Asia, a lot of times companies will just slap a mechanic on there and not really care. They're just throwing it in, hoping that they're going to pick up fans, you know, and make a few extra bucks, pick up fans of the original IP. So that's nice to hear that somebody put some real effort into it. Yeah, well, and I think that, I'm wondering if it's a translated game because there are some errors Ooh, grammatically. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so there's yeah. a few, yeah, like grammatical errors and stuff. But it, it, <laughs> you understand it once you get going or like sure. it starts to sure. make sense. It's, we both did IP games because Dune Imperium, I had that same worry. Like, okay, you know, this is based on yeah. a really big IP. There's several games already of Dune. Yeah. And it's probably the my favorite one. And and Direwolf Digital, I I don't I can't remember if this was their first board game, but they haven't done a lot of non-digital stuff. Like seeing that was this was sort of like one of their early forays into physical board game production. So well, they did uh Clank, right? The designer the designers did Clank, but Direwolf oh, okay. Digital is was all just a digital studio. Oh, okay. So they're 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 sort of uh, yeah they're just sort of dipping their toes into physical board game stuff and I think they did a fantastic job of production on it. I mean that's a be- it's a beautiful yeah. game. Have you gotten any of the ex the I almost called it DLC the expansions? No, <laughs> I have not yet. So um, uh, I really like that. I, I played one of the expansions. Uh, Rise the, of the first one, not the most recent one, but I did like it. Uh, I did like the expansion. It did kind of make. The game, I don't know, there was there was something, I'm forgetting which it was, it was the money or the spice, but it made money or the spice a little less relevant. But it did oh, add a lot of interesting choices on. Cool. And I, and I did spring for the, uh, the the premium box that has all the minis and the, the larger box because, yeah, I love me some minis too. I can't paint them, but I, I love them. <laughs> That's awesome. I have debated it, but my wife didn't super love the game. So I'm like, it's mostly going to be a solo game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't got, I've got Rise of Vix, but I haven't played it yet. So gotcha. I will. A Rise of Vix. That's, yeah, that's, that's the expansion. Yeah. Yeah. The new one is, uh, I don't remember what the new one's called off the top of my head, yeah. but yeah. Uh, okay. Well, what about outside of game board games mm-hmm. and RPGs? What have you been nerding out about? So I, I recently moved into a new house and it's the first time I've, I've had sort of my own space in quite a long time. 
And the two things that I've been nerding out lately on has been luring and creating an army of crows on my back deck, which I'm well on my way to. I, I'm, I'm, I love crows. So having a, a perch for them to come on, on, the, on my deck and hang out and, and eat a lot of peanuts has been great. I, I, I can sit there and watch them eat peanuts all day. And then the other thing is plants. Uh, I've never been much of a plant guy, but that's mostly been because I, as when I was younger and I growing up in the service, like working in the service industry, being a you know, poor kid, I usually had very tiny apartments with very little amount of space. And so having a little more room now, I actually just like filled my house up with plants and I am loving it. Like my girlfriend is laughing at me because I named all of my plants. Oh, nice. Um, can yeah. we get some, can we get some names? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're okay. almost almost all named after characters from The Expanse. So I've got Julie, Julie and Carissa, uh, Clarissa. I've got Christian and Arjun. I've got Amos. Um, I've got uh, Holden and Naomi. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> is that like an obsession for you? Is, is The Expanse like a, one of the so great the Expanse, for you? Yeah, it has been a big one for me. Um, reading the books really kind of, uh, and, and I actually saw the show first, but then going back and reading the books really was influential for me while I was developing Coyote and Crow, uh, because there was this, there was this believability and groundedness to their world building that I really wanted to emulate. I mean, obviously the, the two worlds are very different, but like that feeling of feeling immersed in the world of the expanse, they did such a good job in both the books and the show. And also the other thing is, is that I love that from the start, the show has a really diverse group of people that they, that they really dive into in the world, whether it's belters. Uh, and I, I consider myself a belter Loda. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a belter at heart, but uh, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Bobby being Maori or uh, you know, they've got, all of these different characters from different backgrounds, giving women strong roles. Like it just felt, it felt like what I wanted from modern sci-fi. I agree. And as soon as you were, uh, as soon as you said you named them after uh, characters from the expanse, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this has to play a role into the book because the book, like, as you said that I started drawing connections of like how deep that world building is. Um, So yeah, that's, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Huge inspiration. I'm actually looking at getting a uh, the the Belter tattoo on my neck. The you know oh. the one that Naomi has that goes around the neck. Yeah, yeah that's probably going to be my next tattoo. Do you? I can't remember what that means. And I was talking to somebody like last week about that. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it gets an explanation um, from um, oh man, I'm forgetting the character's name. Uh, he's the one of the heads of OPA on. He's the head of OPA on Eros. Uh, but he's basically the old, uh, the old collars that went around their neck on their spacesuits um, after extended periods would slowly burn them along the neck. And so, even when the technology came about that they didn't have that anymore, the old belters would have those burn scars, and the newer belters would get them around their neck to sort of signify that they were, you know, in allegiance with them. That's fascinating. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Because yeah. neither one, like my friend had read the books and everything. Yeah. And neither one of us could recall what it was. So, yeah. yes. Answer. It's, it's sort of a, a throwaway line, like in the show. And I can't even remember if it gets mentioned in the books, but it's a sort of a throwaway line in the show when he's talking to Miller. Nice. But, okay, good. Good, good. For me, nerding out is I've been playing High on Life on the Xbox. It's just mm. game related. That game has been really funny if you like that kind of like, sci-fi Justin Roiland humor oh um, nice you know like 
what is yeah. uh, Rick and Morty type stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so it's just it's hilarious, like talking guns, alien talking guns, and <laughs> oh my god, is it available for PS5? Do you know? Yeah, I think it is. Okay, I'll have to look into that. I've been looking for a new PS5 games, so yeah, and it's as I've gotten older, it's been harder to get into some RPGs that'll take like 40 hours to beat. I think this yeah. game might be more of like a 20 hour game if you just want to like play through the story stuff. And so it's been doable. I think I'm near the end. And then I've also been watching, I back in the day I watched Legion, uh, which is like the X-Men show. Yeah. And I never finished it. I got almost to the end of the second season. My wife wanted to stop caring. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. I haven't finished. I'm like, I really? stopped at like second season. Oh yeah. See, yeah. Second season kind of dragged. And on my rewatch, I'm, yeah. I have one episode left. Like I, wow. I'm on the finale and holy moly, the third season is like, is nuts. It, I'm wow, so glad okay. that I am rewatching it. Um, there's some actually, like, cause in the first season, there were some almost like horror type scenes. Yeah, right? like, for sure. It had really creepy. There is. I really liked the chances they took on some of those stories. Yeah, same. And they're like paying off, I think, in the third season. And there's some like, oh, it brings back some of that like horror aspect. There's yeah. some like very terrifying stuff that I like. Nice. I was watching it at night and I was like, I should not be watching this right now because <laughs> I am not going to be able to sleep. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. So it's it's great. Um, and I didn't realize it, but because when I originally watched it, uh, but the uh, Carrie, the girl version of Carrie in that, is indigenous and she's the lead in uh, the new Predator movie. What's her oh, name? Oh, Amber Midthunder's in that. Amber Midthunder. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I didn't even, I, 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 it's been so long since I've even watched that show. I'll have to go back. But I, yeah, I loved Prey. That was, like, that was a fantastic movie. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like a total badass. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's go ridiculous theme. Haha, returning segment. Uh, ridiculous theme. We each come up with a ridiculous theme for a board game. Doesn't mean it's bad or a dumb theme. It's just something you think would be kind of silly or fun. Um, do you want to go first? Sure, sure. Okay. So um, my my idea, and I, I just realized that there could be an intellectual property attached to this. And after I tell you, I want you to try and guess if you, which intellectual property might attach this to well, okay. well to. I had this idea because we have in Seattle, we have very involved local politics, like our city council people and all of these people involved, they're very sort of larger than life characters and people get really involved in it. We also have uh, a, a socialist on our city council, one of the few major cities in America to have a socialist on their city council. And I, frankly, I love her. She's kind of a badass. She speaks her mind. She's really loud, uh, vocal about things like minimum uh, living wages and helping the homeless. So I really like that. What's funny about that is, is that a lot of the times the things they get into fights about that make it into the news are ridiculously small things. Sometimes it's big things like a tunnel or whatever, but a lot of times it's like stop signs at an intersection kind of stuff. And I, I really wanted to make this game where players are city council members trying to get ridiculous, stupid things passed or they don't get reelected. You know, it'll be like, you know, you're going to lose 50 votes if you don't get a stop sign at this intersection, these kind of things. And you're trying to jockey and argue with your fellow players and try to make some sort of compromise without giving them too many points. Ooh, I like that a lot. I'm going to guess Parks and Rec. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect for Parks and Rec. And I didn't think about that until later. <laughs> uh, that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. You could totally do that. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that like, 
maybe sometimes you want to go against the thing to rally yeah. votes from a different side and like yes. be able to balance things. That would yeah. be a very fascinating. I like that one. That's a good ridiculous theme. <laughs> Do you have a name for it? Oh man. Um, oh, I want to go with something like something that includes filibuster. Cause it's such a hilarious word on it uh, on its, on its own. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> There could be some sort of filibustering rule, too, where somebody can't get points if the other player just keeps talking. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it could be like, um, you know, if there's cards involved, then it could be like if you play X amount of cards in a row, like if you're able to combo and chain your cards uh, yeah. together. Yeah. Filibuster. Successful filibuster. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> all right. All right. I like this. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. Thanks. Get on it. Um, and that's you? fascinating about Seattle, because I didn't know that. We're big into our local politics here. We love it. That's a that's exciting. Yeah. We always talk about moving to Seattle or Portland. So maybe mm. one day we'll head out there and then we'll get involved in those local politics. <laughs> <laughs> and we should be more involved here, too. We definitely vote on, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's weird how some cities are just don't really seem to care about their local politics and others are really completely engaged. It's strange. Yeah. Yeah. I think it kind of goes under here. So for mine. So my mom the other day, yeah, actually just a couple days ago for me, I uh, was talking about well, my my wife. She did this like painting for my mom and it took her like three years to finish it. She finally oh, wow. finished it. Uh, she had me like look over to see if there were any flaws or anything. I didn't mm-hmm. notice anything. We go to my mom's house and we lay it in front of her. And she's like, oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. You know, she's like nearly yeah. in tears. She's so excited. And I almost immediately I look at it and my eye is drawn to one spot where there is like a a flaw, a major flaw. Like, oh, it, no. like paint never touched this like circle that's probably like a half inch in diameter. Type thing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so I was like horrified. And I was like, do I point it out? And I was like, well, yeah, I might as well point it out because then my wife can fix it. And then we can like bring it back when it's finished. And then my mom was like, no, no, no. Like, that's awesome. Like, don't don't leave that flaw there because that makes it even better. Um, And she talked about how like her dad, um, he was very involved in like his Native American roots. Like he was a storyteller. Mm -hmm. He like he was, you know, one of the official ones where he could only tell the story on certain days and you had to like learn it verbatim. And so he would like go around to schools. He did art. He did music. He had like the full, you know, like outfits, the ceremonial garb and everything. So, so cool. Um, and so she was, it made her like reflect on that. And she was like, I've always like, my dad always told me that in Native American art, you leave a flaw in it. Mm. So don't fix it because it gives like a place, a spot for the evil energy to leave. Mm, I like it. And so I think I've been like obsessed with that thought lately. And normally I come up with an idea. I haven't come up with a full idea for this, but of something like that, where like maybe you have a collection of cards that you're playing as your art and you're leaving a flaw in there and the other players have to identify your flaw in order to like close Mm. it. And so that, so that you like get negative points maybe or something. Yeah. I like that. Intentionally having a bad element to your hand or your board state so that you're like, how do you craft the worst intentional counterpoint to the rest of your strategy to like be the flaw? I love that. That's yeah, that is well put. And that like, even you just saying that makes me like, think like it could literally be anything. Yeah. Like a deck builder where like, 
you don't want a perfect hand. Like you need to be able to play a flaw. Otherwise you get like yeah. a penalty or. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoa, that opens things up. Yeah. Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite thing about ridiculous theme is like, it, especially when you're talking like with other designers, it's like they'll point something yeah. out or that'll spark that inspiration. So I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Ridiculous theme. There we go. So I think, is there anything that you want to talk about before we close out? I think just just to mention, like, uh, especially with everything that's going on with Twitter right now, just to mention that if anybody wants to follow up or, or check out what's going on in Coyote and Crow, we have the, a link to our Discord on our website at coyoteandcrow.net. Our Discord is really lively. We've got a lot of great folks there, a lot of very passionate fans who are happy to answer questions or explain stuff or give ideas. So uh, if, you're, if you need to interact with somebody about Coyote and Crow, it's a great place to do it. Yeah, I joined uh, like a month ago, but then last week got reminded, like, check on it. And so I've been sort of trying to interact a little bit more and, and nice. talk in there a little. Uh, yeah. It's been fun to see so many different people and so many different topics. And then uh, there'll be like, you've created, it's, uh, it's a very nice community. Yes. Well, perfect. Uh, oh, you know what? That actually brings up one thing. If you don't mind. Oh, yeah. I remember, I think on Facebook in a group, I saw you comment about the Barnes and Noble sale. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you care to talk about that for a minute? Because yeah, I was really I, curious I can talk about, about that. For a minute. I, can, I can talk about, and I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I know and what I know that I don't know. Okay. So Barnes and Noble, so I, when I worked for PSI, we worked with Barnes and Noble. We're one of the groups that sells to Barnes and Noble. You know, we represent, like I said, we represented like 150 publishers. So, you know, a lot of the titles, I, I don't know percentage wise, it might be somewhere between a quarter and a half, quarter and a third of the titles that Barnes and Noble came through PSI. Um, so we're very aware of how they operate and how, how they do sales and how this all works. And so what, Obviously, I want folks to get deals. I want consumers to feel like they've gotten good value for their money. But board games are not overpriced. If anything, games are underpriced. And board game publishers, especially the ones who are not Asmodee or Hasbro, are often making very slim margins. So the way that works with Barnes & Noble is, is Barnes & Noble will go to PSI and they'll say, hey, we want game X from this publisher for next year. And that publisher has to agree and say yes and have to deliver a certain amount by a certain date. You know, sometimes that means that they have to go back to immediately do another print run because they don't have the inventory available that Barnes & Noble needs. And part of their agreement with Barnes & Noble is that if it doesn't sell well after a certain period of time, that Barnes & Noble can mark those things down to try and make them uh, sell more rapidly to clear them off the shelves. Because once something is on a shelf, it's never going to be reboxed and shipped back to a publisher. Returns returns are more expensive than they are worth. So once it's on the shelf, all you can do is mark it down until it goes away. And when those markdowns happen, what will happen is, is the publisher, in general, and there are exceptions to this, but in general, the publisher has agreed to share in the cost of those markdowns. So if it's marked down by, let's say, $5.00. Barnes and Noble will generally eat 250 of that and the publisher eats 250 of that. And so then if they sell 5,000 of them, it's 5,000 times $2.50. And that's billed to the publisher. So the publisher then gets a bill. So the publisher has to spend money after they've gotten money. And that's hard. That's hard for a lot of publishers to fork up that kind of cash. 
Now, the difference with this particular style, and I didn't learn this until later after I spoke with some, some folks that I know, some publishers are involved with Barnes & Noble right now, is that this was not a sale that they asked publishers to participate in. Uh, it was unusual in that it was literally all their games were on sale at half off. And I saw a lot of folks say something like, oh, they always do this to pump up their numbers. They always like over order and then sell off so they can say they sold more. I'm like, that's that's bad math. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. If you know anything about business, that's a ridiculous statement. Um, nobody's going to do that. And so I don't know the, the cause or reasoning for that sale, but I can say that it's unusual that Barnes & Noble puts everything on sale. Usually they'll go either for things that they're overstocked on or they'll go for things that are uh, thematically appropriate for the season. Like they'll do like a horror sale or whatever it is, you know, all, all, all horror games. Uh, or Christmas games or something. But generally, publishers are notified in advance. Barnes & Noble plans things out well in advance, and they usually say, hey, we're going to be doing a sale this month. And sometimes it's like six months in advance. Like, we're doing this for our summer sale. Who wants to participate? So the the sort of rush to, to demonize either Barnes & Noble or to not not be aware of the value of your dollar or how your dollars are spent is kind of frustrating for me because I think a lot of... A lot of consumers out there just want low price and they don't realize that always buying at the low price will eventually spell doom for a publisher. And if they like that publisher and they're willing to spend money on that publisher, then they need to realize that they're they're in an ecosystem. They're in a financial ecosystem and always shorting it on one end is damaging the whole ecosystem. That is very fascinating and well put. And I am, I'm a little relieved to because I did buy a, handful of games at that sale yeah, and no, no shame for people who did it i'm not trying to shame anyone who did it no 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 yeah because you're like you're gonna get a deal right like and some yeah. of these games were like games that i got games that i was like i'm interested in this but i this isn't a game yeah. that i would probably get otherwise yeah and so i came home and i think later that day i saw your post and i was like oh no now i feel like I've, i feel a little guilty like okay i need to like support i because i always yeah. want to support you know like our publishers the yeah. games the like if I can buy directly from the the source, that's what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, buy straight so, from publishers yeah. or buy from local game stores when you can. And uh, and, and again, I'm not trying to say people shouldn't buy stuff when it's on sale. Uh, a lot of times there's there's good reasons for sales. A lot of times people are trying to move through old inventory. What's worse for me than somebody buying stuff that's on sale is when I hear that inventory got dumped by a retailer. They just threw it away. That breaks my heart because it's cheaper than trying to send it back or anything else. The publisher will be like, I can't afford to, to pay to have that stuff shipped back. So just go ahead and throw it away and I'll do it as a tax write-off. That oh. breaks my heart. But, Man. But, that, but that goes back to, I think, a big problem in the game industry is that we just don't have a good way to forecast accurately. You know, we have very difficult time, unlike a lot of industries, going, hey, this year I'm going to need 5,000 units of this game. Man, nobody is good at that. Nobody. Yeah, that's hard to, to foresee that, I imagine. So especially yeah. in such a, you know, the pandemic, right? We had this tremendous growth where people yeah. were stuck at home and they were like, we're looking for ways to have fun interactions at home. Um, and then as we've kind of come into like a post pandemic world that yeah. I think is going to shift again and how many people might drop off that hobby or I don't know. It's interesting, but yeah, support publishers. Yeah. 
And just and if you're gonna do a sale, just just be aware of how your dollars are being spent. That's really all I'm asking is like consciousness and, and thoughtful thoughtful thinking or thoughtful uh, thoughtful spending is what I was trying to say. Thoughtful spending. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much for sharing that because uh, yeah. that was like a I didn't even when I saw it I was like I'm actually gonna be talking to him in like a week <laughs> or two whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him about that. I'm glad I remembered before we close out. Great. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thanks. For everything you're doing in the community. Uh, I'm looking forward to everything that's going to be coming out in the future from you. Excellent. Thank you so much. Why don't you go ahead and plug your like social media? You said the Discord, anything. Yeah. So uh, kitingcrow.net, it will have a link to all of our socials. Uh, we're generally pretty active on Twitter uh, at uh, coyote in uh, uh, letter N, coyote in crow RPG on Twitter, kiting crow RPG on uh, Instagram. And then our, like I said, our Discord is our, our main one. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, probably gonna be updating here pretty soon with a new one. We have some, a uh, few explainer videos on the games and then a couple of just uh, sort of general news updates from me. I saw, okay. Uh, I'm sorry to bring up one more it's thing. Right. Bring us back around again. I saw you talking about how you, uh, or it was like an update about um, kind of growing like the media side of things and maybe doing like an actual play or a, or a podcast or more YouTube channels, more media. I yeah. personally would love to see like a Coyote and Crow movie or t- actually TV series, I think would be amazing. Like imagine Expanse yeah. type TV show. Anyways, like, uh, can you talk about kind of what the goals are there? Yeah. So um, we've got some small scale stuff that we're working on, um, including like an actual play podcast, uh, sort of our, our version of Critical Role, as it were. Um, that's sort of in the background right now. Um, separately, I'm also working on developing uh, a comic book, a live action TV series. Movies are further down the line, but that's that's not out of the realm of possibility as well. I, I think this world is perfect for something along the lines of like a uh, an Amazon Prime or a Netflix or a, an HBO Max kind of series. And I already wrote out the full treatment for the first season for that. And we've got a few actors on board that were that have already expressed interest. Um, so we're shopping that around right now. Um, nothing, nothing to announce. No, nothing. In no way do I want to hint that there's any kind of signed deal. There is not. But I, I think both both a comic book and a TV show are a real possibility. Uh, I think the the setting lends itself to it well, and I think the timing is right. I think people are hungry for more authentic indigenous stories. So I agree 100. I mean, you look at even recent this last like three years has had a very big yeah. swell in it with like res dogs and rutherford Dark falls yeah dark wind yep yep like oh so much incredible stuff coming out and oh man i'm excited to hear that it's a tv show that you're working on i hope that it like it, it comes to pass because that would be a dream come true for me yeah. uh, to watch that yeah, same here. Same here. I've got some some characters that I've written for that show that are already very near and dear to me already. And, uh, you know, being able to see them come to life on a screen would be for certain a dream come true. So. Oh, man. Well, here's hoping. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. I'm- oh, oh, and then and then also um, also I'm actually well, I need to go back and bug them again. It's been a little while since we've talked, but I'm also interested in having like a triple a, a open world video game. What? So, that would be yeah. awesome. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I want something that feels like something like a cross between Horizon Zero Dawn and Mass Effect as far as like an RPG centric massive open world storyline for Coyote and Crow. Yeah. 
Wow, that would be, yes, that would be incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that is so much exciting stuff. Hopefully in yeah. the next few years, it's just like everything's exploding. And let's hope, let's hope. Let's yeah. Because, because honestly, like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to like have anybody play tiny violins for me, but it's m- making it in the, in just in the board game industry is tough. It's tough. There's not a lot of money to be had here. So outside of the folks like, you know, Hasbro and, and, uh, asthma day. So I am always just blown away that people like make a full living doing this. Uh, and I know that a lot of that is passion. Like, yeah. Uh, being willing to like maybe not make as much, but you're yeah. being able to put in yeah. like and do what you want to do. And it absolutely should not be that way. It absolutely. You should be able to make a living in this industry. So I yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of those, a lot of those links I'll put in the episode description so you can go look in there. Um, I'll definitely include the discord invite link there. Um, and then as for me, uh, I was just interviewed on Boards Alive or a guest on Boards Alive, guest co-host, I guess, uh, is more so what it would be. And so I talked about Oros and I talked about, I think I talked about Dreamlight Valley, the Disney game on there, because uh, that was the most recent video game I played. So go check out Boards Alive. Awesome. Like, I think him and I, our shows kind of go well together. So if you're liking the show, you definitely should check out Boards Alive. Uh, Tuesday, I'll be playing... Marvel United with Mr. Rao on his channel, Mr. Rao Gaming on YouTube. So go check that out. I think we're going to be doing it live. So you'll hear this before that. So join us Tuesday night over on his channel. And then Protospiel Online is an online playtesting convention uh, started during the pandemic to kind of counteract not being able to meet in person and do those playtesting conventions. So I will be hosting a... uh, a kind of like how to build your community or just be around for a couple hours on Saturday afternoon. That's tomorrow from when this airs. Yeah. So the protospiel online is the 13th through the 15th. Uh, come and play test online games uh, and help designers shape their games. So on the 14th, I will be on there from 11, no, no, from 1 to 3 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And then the next Saturday, which is the 21st, there is Protocon Online, which is a similar event, a little, a bit smaller, uh, but you can come and play test people's designs and hang out and chat and meet a bunch of people. And that goes on all day. Both really fun uh, ways to help designers in the community. And then lastly, Friend and Foe Adventure Co. So an immaturely mature Borderlands Bunkers and Badasses podcast that I do. I'm the GM there. And uh, yeah, we just are doing our wacky, crazy adventure. There's the story is getting bigger and bigger, uh, and I feel like I am I have grown very, very proud of the direction it has taken. So check that out if you don't mind a little bit more of an explicit podcast uh, and adventure comedy as well. Lots of lots of laughing. Uh, one more thing: Are you a DM or are you a GM or a player more so? Oh, absolutely a GM. Like I, I, as soon as I figured out how to play D and was, I was telling the stories behind the screen. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I, I totally would have guessed that. <laughs> I, I, I kind of want to play and I always end up being the DM, right? So, yeah. Forever. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then that is it. Follow me at Riled Nerd. Rate review the podcast. And until next time, keep nerding out. Uh, so there was originally uh, an Aliens role-playing game done by Leading Edge back in the 90s, and uh, I'd gotten it. 
and I went to see some friends in another town and we got together for a complete, just one weekend of gaming. And this is my early twenties. And I, there must've been at least 12 people at the table and they were literally all colonial Marines in the same squad. And we ran a one shot with 12 people that lasted almost 48 hours straight. We basically all stayed up in the same house, slept on the floor on the couches, wherever we could find a, a horizontal place to sleep, played all weekend and had a fantastic time that was literally just blood and gun filled alien action everywhere. Blood, acid, ships crashing, guns firing. That's the story that I want to write for Free League. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we were exhausted, but hey, we all had so much fun. Oh, that sounds incredible. Like, I want to do that kind of thing. Come on. Who, who, <laughs> who in my friend's group wants to come over and just uh, like, do like a 48-hour thing? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I was going to ask you, but I didn't know if you, uh, about the Free League thing, what story. But I, I was like, oh, that's probably a secret. But I guess... Yeah, I'm not going to give any of the details of what the story was. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that secret. Yeah.